0: Well, this weekend, uh, Sheila and I had an opportunity to uh, celebrate our anniversary. This was our 16th uh, anniversary this year, and it's been a very fast 16 years. I'm supposed to say that, right, guys? I think I'm supposed to say it that way. But it, no, truly has been wonderful. We enjoyed some time together in the city on Friday. And, you know, as we were walking through Central Park on Friday night, it occurred to me that Lancaster County and New York City actually they have some things in common. You know, in, in Central Park, you can get on a horse and buggy. And, and you can ride, now it doesn't look like the horse and buggies that we have. I think they call them horse and carriages. But you can get on, you can ride these things around the park and see all the sights. And you know, they have really tall buildings, but we have really tall silos. You know, and so we, there's, some, there's some things. And maybe that's where the similarities uh, end right there. But you know, one thing that I was reminded of, and, and I love New York City. It's one of my favorite places in the world. We, I try to go there often. We try to go there at least once a year if we can. But boy, it reminds us that everything changes, right? Everything. I mean, New York City is never the same. The lights go out, and the next morning, something is different. Something's under construction. Something's new. They're building something else. A store that used to be in one location is no longer there. And there is great... Change, you know. Last Sunday, uh, we were at a soccer game in the afternoon, and we heard of a great change that's coming to the southern end of Lancaster County, that many folks have been mourning over, and uh, that is the closing of Ferguson and Hasslers. And I know some of you are from the northern side or the northeast side, so for you, for you all, this would be like Yoder's closing. All right, for for y'all, this is big news, and. My, my children now, every time we drive past a giant, they collectively boo in the back seat of the car. <laughs> and I don't know why, I don't know where the loyalty has, has come in such a short amount of time to, uh, to Fergie's, but nonetheless, Uh, It's there, and you know the question is, and and it's similar to the question that we're answering about Jesus through the next three chapters of John 7. The question that my children want to know and want the answer to is, Who is Giant? Who is this superstore? They've never been in this market before. They don't know anything about it. They're going to learn a lot about it over the next few weeks and the next few months, but we have been asking this question through this section of John chapter 7. And last week was kind of our introduction to it. And all through John 7 to John 10, this question just resonates over and over and over again. Who is Jesus? And, and more likely, the people who were walking with Him in those days were asking, is this truly the Christ, the Son of the living God? Who is Jesus? If you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 7. We're going to be looking at verses 14 to 25 today. Just to put this in context to what we see and what's happening here, this event in John chapter 7 is happening about six months after a group had tried to come and forcibly make Jesus their king. If you remember in John chapter 16, that's when that event happened. This event in John 7 is occurring about six months after that. And just to give you an idea of where it is in the timeline of the life of Jesus, what we're going to read today, most scholars believe took place about six months before Jesus' crucifixion. So we're ending, we're coming towards the end of Jesus' public earthly ministry, and as we spoke last week, he's privately moving towards Judea. He's attending this feast, but he's attending it on his own purposes. He's not attending it uh, for the reasons his brothers wanted him to attend it, and this is not an occasion for miraculous signs and wonders today in this portion of John. Jesus will ascend to the temple, and he will begin teaching now in a very public way setting. And before we read from John chapter 7, let's take a moment to pray for the Lord to superintend over our time. Father, as we open our word today and we continue to unpack this question, who is Jesus? We look forward with anticipation to the answer that your text uncovers over the next few weeks, Lord, as we spend our time in this portion of John. Father, we know that you have great intention to use your word in our time together this morning to change us, to help us to grow, to show us something perhaps that we had never seen before, that causes us to think a bit differently and then influences our behavior in a way that causes us to love you more and love our neighbors and those you bring into our pathways in a better way as well. So Lord, it's with that anticipation we open your word this morning Knowing that your spirit's at work, might you receive all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 7, we're going to start in verse 14. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up to the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you the circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision... So the law of Moses may not be broken. Are you angry with me? Because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. And so here we are, last week we set this feast up, we, we talked about why they had this feast, how popular and how important of a feast this was for the Jewish people. Now, in the context of this passage, we've reached the middle of this eight-day celebration. And Jesus has arrived, finally to the feast, with intentions to teach. And for the Jewish people, religious leaders perhaps it was right for them to recognize a bit of irony in the moment here I believe it would have been correct for them to recognize irony because this same person who was teaching in the temple was the very same person who just a few chapters before in John in their mind had told them to destroy it John chapter 2 verse 19 "Destroy this temple and in three days, I will raise it up. Of course, we know as we sit here, Jesus was talking about his physical body. But that's not how the religious leaders of the day interpreted it. They thought he was speaking literally. And perhaps they were a bit surprised to see Jesus making such perfect use of a building with which they real uh, that he'd encourage them to destroy. And we say that Jesus was a great teacher. And indeed, uh, these crowds of rabbinically trained scholars recognized his mastery of the scriptures. Isn't their question insightful? How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? Now I want to pause there and I want to say Jesus was gifted. Because I don't know about you guys that sit in the room here today with me, but I was a, a young man that needed to study. I had no learning without studying. Uh, I needed to work very, very hard in school. It took me a lot of time. And and I remember studying, 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 and still not feeling like I got the grade that I deserved for the amount of time I put in. But here's Jesus, able to completely uh, and, and openly teach the scriptures and have people marvel at his mastery of it. Their question, the question of the folks that are listening to him, these scholars, it's an interesting one. It's bathed in both jealousy and offense. They're offended and they're jealous that a man with with no training, with no learning would be able to get up in front of them and teach in the way that he was teaching. Jesus' teaching was different than the teaching that they were used to. And so I think that there's a good question here. What set Jesus' teaching apart? What set it apart? What made it different? What made it so powerful? For those of you that sit in this room and have had a favorite professor in school, somebody who you loved, who you couldn't wait to go to their class every single day, what made their teaching different? And the answer to that question for Jesus is right, right here in the text. There's three realities regarding jesus's teaching that set them apart and the first is this jesus's teaching was free from the clutter of rabbinical tradition now what do we mean by that well you have to understand that if you were a young jewish person growing up in the synagogue and you had a rabbi that you were following and and he was teaching you and you were trying to learn from him when he would teach his teaching would sound a lot like a master's thesis what do you mean? Well, you know how in a master's thesis you have endnotes and footnotes and such and such as a rabbi teaches this. And so we hold to this, but we say this and we go back to here and we cite this for that. And their teachings would be filled with footnotes, citations. And you know, they were relying on the tradition of the rabbis and the rabbis' interpretations rather than the Old Testament scriptures themselves. It's it's for this very reason that you so often hear Jesus say, you have heard it said, but I say. His teaching was different. He knew what they had grown up hearing. He knew what the rabbinical scholars were teaching them. And he had the authority to be able to say, you have heard it said, but I say. Another line he used a lot. I tell you the truth. I tell you the truth. How offensive that must have been to folks who had grown up believing that this rabbi or that rabbi, their whole lives had communicated the truth to them. Jesus said, I tell you the truth. These were statements that pressed back against the popularly, popularly accepted interpretations of Old Testament Scriptures. Jesus' interpretation of the Scriptures was not held up with any, within any of these rabbinical traditions. In fact, in verse 16, look at what Jesus says in verse 16. He assures his listeners. what does he say? "My teaching is not mine, but belongs to him is His who sent me." And so Jesus taught on God's authority. He taught on God's authority. His teaching was different. It was was more powerful. It was more influential. It was more instructive because he was teaching on the very authority of God. Take a look at verse 17. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. How do we know that Jesus spoke on God's authority? Well, he used the word of God. He was the Word. It was the title ascribed to him in John chapter 1. And because he was the Word, he held a perfect mastery of the scriptures. Jesus used the Bible when he taught. He used the Old Testament scriptures. And believe it or not, he quoted from all three parts of the Old Testament scriptures. He quoted from the law, he quoted from the songs, and he quoted from the prophets. He quoted from all of them. The Word of God, friends, is a dominating force. And the Spirit uses the Word of God to produce life. And Jesus knew this. And he leveraged the power of the Word perfectly when he taught. In the Gospels alone, where we see the red letters, some of you had red letter Bibles, where you see Jesus actually teaching. In the gospel alone, we find at least 65, 65 direct uses of the Old Testament scriptures or clear allusions to the Old Testament scriptures. When Jesus is in the desert and he's being tempted by Satan, what does he use? The scriptures. They were always on his mind, in his heart, and it was from the scriptures where his words and his teaching flowed the words of jesus were full of the knowledge of god because jesus knew that all knowledge is dependent on the one who gives all truth and knowledge so here's a follow-up question for us church if our knowledge as we sit here today as a church if what we know our knowledge is dependent on god and truth is found in his word Why do we so often go looking other places for it, right? And and I want to pause for a second. I don't want you to mishear me or misunderstand me. I want you to know that I love to read, and I love academic pursuit. I think that with the right heart, it's a good thing. It's a good thing to study something and to set your mind to the passions that the Lord puts in your hearts. I think those are good things. But I do want to pause, and I do want to say, especially in the Bible college setting, especially uh, in the world of training pastors and ministry leaders. I believe that on many occasions, we prop up the works of men and give them greater authority in our classes than the work of God. And I think that's so dangerous. And, and again, I don't want you to get me wrong. I, I, I want you to understand I read other writers and I think the Lord beautifully gifts people to write and to help us understand the truth of His Word. But I also want to say that our, the, the copendium of our time, the amount of time that we spend reading and studying, if it's far outweighed by books and, of writers and authors and other people, then in God's Word, there could be an issue there. There could be a problem. You know, one of the things I recognized as we were walking through New York City yesterday. We saw so many beautiful churches. And have you ever been through New York and seen St. Patrick's Cathedral? There's so many beautiful churches. And we were walking, I think we were on Broadway going up from South Ferry, going up towards 60th Street, and there was a beautiful church on the right-hand side. And as soon as we walked past the church, right next to it was a Gothic building. Uh, with gothic clothing and all this stuff. It's all, only in New York City. Uh, and another few stores up, there is this bookstore. And on the shelves, in the window, I saw all of these books with all of these different philosophies. New Age Buddhism, all of these things. And there are so many philosophies and things in this world that can take us captive and draw us astray. And our safest place, friends, the best place that we can come from When answering the questions of today's world is the word of God. We have to be uh, careful to avoid our opinions, our feelings. Those things change. There's also a danger in our culture today of experience overruling truth. I saw that on an ad the other day, just Saturday in New York City. This huge ad. You know how they put those ads on the side of buildings? And it said, this is my truth this is my truth. I thought, how interesting. Experience overruling truth. There's so much knowledge out there, friends, that puffs up, and the Bible warns us about it. There's philosophies everywhere, but we find real knowledge. We find life-giving knowledge in the Word of of God. And if we want to follow the example of Jesus when we teach, if we desire to do God's will, we will spend time learning to speak by his authority, which is found in his word. Psalm chapter 40, verse 8, it's beautiful. It says, I delight to do your will. Oh my God, your law is within my heart. As we walk in the will of God, spending time in His Word, the Holy Spirit works in our hearts, motivating us, compelling us to love in the same manner that Jesus loved. And there's a third reality here regarding Jesus' teaching. Jesus taught for God's glory. So he, He taught free of the rabbinical clutter that cluttered up so much teaching. He taught on God's authority using God's Word, but He also taught for the glory of God. Students and disciples will rarely follow teachers who are out for their own personal glory. As I said earlier, the best teachers I ever had, the ones that I loved more than any other professor, were the ones that gave themselves away. They literally gave themselves away to their students. They didn't hold on to an ounce of anything. And you know, every once in a while, I'd walk into a class and I'd have a professor and And he was so self-absorbed and so excited about the books that he wrote and all these academic things that that he'd accomplished and so tied up and busy and loving himself that he had no love to give to his students. And friends, the best teachers, the most effective teachers, the best disciple-makers, the most effective disciple-makers, we talk about making disciples here at Calvary Monument, how important that is to be a disciple-making church. They're the the ones that give themselves away to other people. They just give of themselves. The teachers that truly do this leave the greatest influence and legacy Jesus' knowledge, his wisdom, his teachings, they were absorbed by his disciples. Their minds were like sponges and people knew who Jesus' disciples were by the way that they spoke because they spoke like him and by the way that they acted. There's an example of this in Acts chapter 4, verse 13. It's not on the screen. I'm just going to read it to you. Now when they saw the boldness Oh, I'm sorry, I have it here. Acts chapter 4, verse 13. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated, common men. They were astonished, and what? They recognized they had been with Jesus. Something was different. Something was different. His ability to influence, to teach, his giving himself away, very literally on the cross, changed their lives. It caused them to think differently. Caused them to live differently. To reason differently. And people knew the disciples who had been with Jesus. Look at verse 18 though. Jesus is also going to press his questioners into a precarious corner. It says this in verse 18. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true and in him there is no falsehood. If Jesus' questioners were to say that Jesus was speaking on his own authority and pursuing his own glory, they would then render his teaching null and void. But they couldn't do that because what Jesus was saying in the temple was true. It was true. And say so they were pressed into a precarious corner here. Jesus is essentially asking them, by whose authority... Do you think I'm teaching these things? If Jesus is speaking on the authority of the Father and seeking the Father's glory, then His teaching is true. And in Him is no falsehood. And whether they realized it or not, the people who had gathered around uh, at this point to hear from Jesus' teaching, their behavior was being influenced by Jesus' teaching because Jesus was teaching the Word of God and they were marveling at it. And this marveling it can be good but it can also be interpreted that there is a lot of discussion and debate going on who is this what's this guy saying this is new i don't understand etc cetera, etc cetera. these men that had joined they thought they were already perfectly and completely accurately fulfilling the law of moses but jesus is going to move now in our text to show them a better way the perfect fulfillment of the law would now seek to use the law itself to help broaden their application of the law and help in their application of it as well. So Jesus is the true teacher who perfectly fulfills and applies the law. Look down at verses 19 to 23. Jesus is going to move to show them how their fulfillment of the law is inadequate. Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps it? Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus said to them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision. Not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me? Because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well. Jesus again goes back to Moses. He's setting himself up as a better Moses who's able to lead better than Moses led. And Moses after receiving the law from God on the mountain physically delivered the law to the people. And notice here that Jesus this is an important observation. Put this one down in your notes. This is really important. Jesus is not accusing them of breaking the law here. That's not what what he's intending to say by his comments. He's intending to show them how they are not rightly applying or wholly or fully applying the law. The religious leaders' applications of the law was often far too narrow or far too broad. Rarely did they hit the mark intended when the law was given. Knowing the law inside and out, they misused and they misapplied its intended meanings. The friends, church, We should not be surprised by this as we sit here today because this was one of the functional purposes of the law. Did did we ever realize that, church? That when Moses gave the law to the people, one of the purposes for the law was to reveal the inadequacy of the peoples in their ability to follow it. The law revealed our condemnation. It revealed our inability. The ministry of the law was a ministry of death. And through it, it revealed our own inadequacy. And friends, through that, God was glorified. Paul describes this. Keep your finger in John 7. Turn over to Romans 7. Paul describes this in Romans 7. Go ahead and turn there. This is, this is powerful. Paul's talking about the law. In the context of the church of Rome, he's talking about the law because the law still had some meaning to these people. But he wants them to understand the meaning of the law in its proper context. So go to Romans 7. Keep your fingers in John 7. Look down at verse 7. We look at verses 7 to 12 of Romans chapter 7. A lot of 7's here today. It's alright. I love when Paul asks and answers questions. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? Verse 7. By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But look at verse 8. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. So, Paul's press, pressing in to this, and he continues it. in 2 Corinthians 3 7, he talks about the law ministry being a ministry of death, uh, stones that were carved, that were stones carved unto death. But he continues in Romans 7, look down at verses 13 and 14. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under. Sin, friends, sin and death exposed our inability to keep the law, the religious leaders as perfectly as they knew the law, and they could recite it back to you forwards, backwards, in every which way. You could have asked them to, to recite to you a command from any portion of the law, and they would have been able to do it. But they were not applying it correctly. It was only proving what Paul said to be true in Romans 7: their own inability. To fulfill the law. And I love the conclusion Paul comes to. Look down at verse 24 in Romans 7. Look at how he says this. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? And then what does he say? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Here we are in this moment of right judgment against their intentions, back in John chapter 7, Jesus is pressing right into them. He's showing them their own ability to fulfill and apply this law because he knows that in the audience, there are people that desperately want to kill him. They want to kill him. Look what he says in verse 19. Why do you seek to kill me? His question cuts to the very heart of those who would later have him crucified in just six months. And they're offended, aren't they? They're indignant that Jesus would so clearly be able to reveal the intentions of their hearts. The motivations of their hearts. They're completely upset. In fact, what do they accuse him of? They say, you have a demon. This was not the first time, probably wouldn't be the last, John 8, John 10, Matthew 12, Mark 3. Oftentimes, Jesus was accused of having a demon. Blinded by their anger and rage, they proclaim, Who is seeking to kill you? The very group who six months later would see Jesus pinned to a cross are completely blind to the conditions of their own hearts completely blinded Jesus doesn't take offense he's not offset by their defensiveness he actually moves on to illustrate and set a powerful argument up here for us in verse 21 look at what he says I did one work and you all marvel at it the same word that was used for how they were responding to his teaching is how they responded to the work that he did. And you remember all the way back in John 5, what was that work? What did Jesus do? He healed the man at the pool. And what did that cause people to do? Marvel. But even then, what was that word marvel? Some people thought it was great and wonderful, and other people thought, what's going on? Can he do that? Is he allowed to do that? Well, he just did. Jesus, he can do whatever he wants, however he He wants. The same thing, people were marveling at his teaching. He did one work, and people were marveling, scrutinizing, debating, trying to fit it into their lens of understanding and interpretation as it applies to the law. Jesus is definitely constructing a forcible argument here. He's going from whole to part, back to whole again. Jesus had healed a man completely on the Sabbath. And, and I think it's a good time for us to pause here and to reflect on this church how we interpret and understand the scriptures has a direct correlation to how we apply them in our lives the pharisees the sadducees the religious leaders they did they knew the law but they didn't understand the law and they couldn't interpret it very well and so they weren't really able to apply it that well in their lives or apply it to the lives of the people that they were called to lead and friends, for, for us, for the church, how we understand, how we interpret the, the scriptures, it directly applies to how we use them in our daily lives. Now, here's the argument that he's going to form together. It's in verse 22. Moses gave you circumcision. All right, and so here's what happened. The law would say that on the eighth day, after a child was born, on the eighth day, that child had to be circumcised according to the law of Moses. Well, let's ask a question. What happens for a child who is born on the Sabbath? Well, some, some, might even, some of the Pharisees might even wondered if it was lawful for a woman to give birth on the Sabbath. But, but nonetheless, children were born on the Sabbath. And so do you see the quandary here? Eight days later, it was a Sabbath. So what are we to do? We can't work, we can't pick up tools, we can't do any... Are we going to circumcise this child on the eighth day, even though it falls on the Sabbath? And the popular interpretation, the accepted interpretation of the day... And again, Jesus isn't saying it was wrong... Was, yes, you circumcise the child on the eighth day, according to the law of Moses, even though it falls on the Sabbath. So here's what Jesus is saying... To the religious leaders. If that is okay. If it's okay for you to heal a man in part on the Sabbath. Why was it not okay for me to heal a man completely on the Sabbath? Whole part. Their application of the law was insufficient. They were not applying it the right way. The people had no chance, friends. Could you imagine living in this society? How confused you would be. This rabbi says it's okay. This one says it's not. I don't know. I have no idea what I'm doing. I think we're doing it right. I don't know. Jesus said, My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus applied the law on the basis of grace, not on the basis of of tradition and that is huge it changed everything everything john chapter 1 verse 17 for the law was given through moses but grace and truth came through jesus christ this is how jesus applied the law and it looked completely different than what the rabbis were used to and what the pharisees and religious leaders were used to people didn't do this and so, his application to understand the law completely was pressing into them and pressing up against their comfortably held traditional interpretations. And so, I love the way that Jesus concludes this passage. He's the true teacher who perfectly fulfills and applies the law and judges in righteousness. Look at what he says in verse 24. They're judging him based on how he applies the law and the appearances and what it looks like. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Now, church, two observations. First, sometimes we get this wrong. this, This verse does not say, do not judge, period. It's not saying that. And we hear this, well, who are you to judge? I can't be judged. We're not supposed to judge others. That's not what Jesus is saying here. In fact, the reality is, he's actually telling the people to judge. He's just telling them to do it with right judgment. And right judgment is not based on appearances. And unfortunately, church, we are guilty, oftentimes, of the same thing that the Pharisees were in Jesus' time. Judging based on appearances, misusing, misinterpreting, misapplying passages in the Bible, using them in judgment and condemnation rather than in love and in the building up of our brothers and our sisters. There's this flyswatter verse. I want to give you an example of this. I call it the flyswatter verse of Christianity. When I was young and growing up, uh, our friends you know we were we were all growing together and some of us were immature and some of us felt like they could go and do this or go and do that and others felt that they couldn't and there was this one verse that would always be used to shut down anything that anybody thought was wrong right so if we were in this group of four or five friends and somebody went to a movie and we were all like huh? what you went to see that movie oh oh you know and then you'd have this big debate and go back and forth and the friend that went to see the movie would say well that's Give his reasoning, and somebody somewhere along the line would throw it out. First Thessalonians five twenty-two, fly water verse of all Christianity: abstain from every form of evil, right? And and that would just be it was it would be thrown out to shut the argument down. And friends, I want to share this with you today as a way that sometimes we misuse, misinterpret, and misapply the scriptures. How would Jesus stand? under this scrutiny friends Jesus the one that hung out with the prostitutes the tax collectors the sinners would it look like he was abstaining from every form of evil by his appearances but then again Jesus says do not judge based on appearances judge with right judgment and what is the basis of right judgment church The basis of right judgment is love. It's love. And we should ask ourselves the question before we throw verses around at friends or try to win arguments of what you should or shouldn't do, is what we're saying patient? Is it displaying kindness? Are our comments, our judgment? Done out of envy or a desire for our own justification so that we can boast in our own appearances of righteousness? Are our judgments based in arrogance? Are they rude? Do our comments assist, insist on their own way? Are they irritable? Does it uncover and expose any resentfulness in our own hearts? Does it rejoice? And then he wrongdoing. Is what I'm thinking, saying, and doing in my judgments against others and how they behave and how it appears that they behave, is it coming from the Bible? Is it grounded and accurately representing the Word of God? Jesus cared about these things, friends. They were important to him. And I think the question, church, before we pass judgment on anybody else is are we doing it in love, and with the right intention, and the right motivation? And are we considering the person's heart and their best interest? That's love, friends. That is love. And that's how Jesus would want us to judge. He's not saying don't judge. He's just saying when we judge, we need to do it rightly. Right judgment. So who is Jesus? We're answering this question all the way through this John chapter 7 to 10. In, in this portion of John, He's the true teacher who perfectly fulfills and applies the law and judges in absolute righteousness. Church, as, as we go today, as we leave this place today, might His example be our example? And might we truly consider His words if we're in the judgment of others. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Father, we're always thankful when your son Jesus shows us where we're off. And especially in this passage today, looking at the way the Pharisees and Sadducees understood the law and how he corrected them, Lord, we're we're asking that you would convict us in our own hearts of places where we misunderstand, misuse, misapply, and misinterpret the scriptures. Lord might we be a people. Who judge with right judgment. On the foundation of grace. With an attitude of love. That before we look to anyone else's behaviors. Or appearances of their behaviors. That we would test our own hearts. And our own minds. We would remember the sacrifice that you made. And how fool it was and how good it was for each one of us thank you for being the true teacher who showed us how to completely fulfill apply and use the scriptures and who judges rightly in jesus name we pray amen before you go today i want to share with you if you come at eight o'clock next week We can hang out together, but it won't be in here. (laughs) I'll be here, but I won't be in here. So I want you to lock it away. Remember, next week, 9 o'clock, lots of exciting things happening. We have a picnic we're going to celebrate. We have a family life hour. We're welcoming new members. We're dedicating children. We are going to have some really fun and exciting things. I learned of last week, but I'm not going to give it away. You'll have to come be here. It's going to be a great time, and I'm looking forward to the fellowship Uh, at our picnic as well afterwards. So I I look forward to a great Sunday next week, and I hope the rest of your holiday weekend as well as you leave today.